Welcome back to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry, and I am joined, as always, by Barrett Fisher. Uh, today's movie is David Lynch's 1999 film, The Straight Story. So let's uh, walk into the video store and see how things are going for Barrett. Barrett, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Sam. Barrett, um, I just need to tell you, I saw this movie uh, once before. Um, it was in 1999. So it was right after it came out. Um, somehow Bethel Film Forum, so this would have been my senior year of college, Bethel Film Forum got access to this pretty pretty quickly. Um, so that was the one time that I saw it was, I think, in the in the Benson Great Hall here at Bethel. And I loved it. But that's, that's you know, 21 years ago. Um, and I need to tell you, this movie was a gift to be able to watch. So I want to thank start by thanking you for recommending it. Oh, you're welcome. That's one. That's one of the pleasures of recommending film. Although there are certain people out there who, if I recommend a film, know they don't want to watch it. So I'm glad that you enjoyed this one. <laughs> so, uh, when did? What is your your memory of seeing this the first time? That's a good question. I'm trying to remember. I'm I'm pretty sure since um, I've been a Lynch fan for a long time, I'm pretty sure that I would have seen it in the theater. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I've seen it since or not. Um, I certainly remember being surprised by it because it's obviously not a typical Lynch film. Um, I think I went into it a little suspicious for that reason, but I, I was really impressed by it. I thought it was an amazing, uh, amazingly different film for David Lynch. In fact, uh, Lynch has said of the film that it was his most experimental film. Yeah, I read that. What, what, uh, what do you think he means by that? Well, I think actually I've been mulling that over and I think that um, the best response I've come across was from Janet Maslin's original review in the New York Times. And she says, uh, when a born unnaturalist like Lynch can bring such interest and emotion to one man's simple story, the realm of the ordinary starts looking like a new frontier. And I think that phrase, a born unnaturalist, because if you watch any Lynch films at all, beginning with Eraserhead and through just about everything else he's done, you know that he's um, he's a surrealist. Um, he's somebody who has a very odd take on on reality. Everything in his world. I mean, there, you even have the adjective Lynchian to describe right. his take on reality. So I think it's experimental for Lynch because of the fact that it's so, in some respects, so straightforward. Um, so maybe let's let's stay on Lynch for a little bit here because in our first episode you talked about him as um, as one of your favorite filmmakers. You talked about yourself as a Lynch completist. Now I will say when I first saw this movie, I don't think that I knew who David Lynch was. I mean, I, I was aware of some of his work, but I like that didn't I didn't connect the name David Lynch to even something like Twin Peaks or something like that. Um, so I was 20, I was 21, I think when I saw this. So I, I hadn't really um, taken a dive into, into much of his work. Um, and I will say even now there it's, you know, I've seen some of his things. I was a huge fan of, especially the David Lynch episodes of Twin Peaks. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I found the, uh, the, what the, the, the episodes from a couple of years ago, um, sort of a tough hang. <laughs> um, uh, but, but like very interesting, but, but it was, I think sometimes I, I imagine with Lynch for a lot of people, your mileage varies. And so he's kind of hit and miss with me when I, when mm -hmm. I love him, I think he's amazing. And mm -hmm. then there's other things where it doesn't connect. So tell me a little bit about maybe your history with David Lynch. Well, I guess, yeah, my, my history with Lynch goes all the way back to his first film, which is um, Eraserhead. 
which was a an independent film that took him about four years uh, to complete. And interestingly enough, um, at least one of the people involved in the straight story was involved in in Eraserhead. Um, Jack Fisk, who does um, the the uh, the art design and the production design for this film, um, he was uh, also the production designer or the art designer for um, Eraserhead. In fact, he appears in the film. So, but Eraserhead, um, it's not, again, another one of those films where when I saw the poster for it, it's the famous image of Jack Nance, who plays the, uh, the title character with this huge um, uh, head of hair and uh, kind of this dust exploding up behind his, his head. When I first saw that poster, it was just something about that image um, that told me this is a film I want to see. And so, as I mentioned earlier, there were art houses in New Haven near where I grew up. And so I was able to see the film in the theater quite early on. And um, there was there's just something about that skewed view of reality uh, that Lynch has that I find find very appealing. He's one of those people that can kind of take you into dark places in an exploratory way. Um, feeling like you can kind of come out, you can kind of come out alive on, on, on the other side. So there's just something about that particular, um, uh, maybe you want to call it a, a kind of a, of a twisted perspective on reality, but there's something about the way he, he skews reality that I find makes it helpful to re-engage with reality when you come out the other side. So sure. yeah, I, I've been with him since, since Eraserhead, and then I, did every, I, I watched everything he did uh, forward from there except for Dune which I avoided for many years and finally went back and watched. But Dune is kind of a whole different story. Sure, sure. Um, the straight story is obviously a, 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 maybe an interesting inroads to thinking about David Lynch. I mean, if you were to, if you were to, and I, and I, you can, you can cautiously recommend depending on sort of who, who the audience is here. If you were to recommend something that was, um, Maybe the apex of Lynch as Lynch. What would you recommend somebody watch? Okay, I'm gonna get. I'll, I'll, I'll give you two recommendations. Um, the Lynch as Lynch is definitely Mulholland Drive. Okay. Um, but there are some people that might not have an easy time with aspects of that film. So that's that's my caution. That's Lynch as Lynch. I, I think Mulholland Drive is his greatest film. Um, some people say Blue Velvet, but for some reason, I just don't think that's the case. But the other thing I was going to say is if you want to try a Lynch that's not going to put you off the way a lot of Lynch can, the other film I would I would recommend highly is The Elephant Man. Um, okay, I forgot he made that. Yeah, that was his that was his first film for a major studio after he uh, after Eraserhead drew attention. Um and so Elephant Man, it's 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 also compared to other Lynch films, it's pretty straightforward. It's got a opening prologue that's very Lynchian, but then the rest of it is his adaptation of the, of the stage play. Um, it's a really great performance by Anthony Hopkins and um, John Hurt as El the Elephant Man is, is fantastic. So that's definitely one I think that people, if they enjoyed the straight story, could also uh, would also like that. What year was the Elephant Man? I mean, roughly, like when, when was that? Okay. Yeah. So I have to edit even the story I told you. The first David Lynch movie I ever saw was that. Oh, um, okay. And it was it, it was probably 80, 1984. I think it was on television. I think mm -hmm. that um, that feels about right. And I remember, I don't know why I would have been like seven years old. I don't know why I watched it. Um, but it was on, and I remember being like deeply haunted by. It. I've never seen it since. I really should go back and watch it. Like, 
Um, but I remember like, I didn't sleep that night and not that I was scared, but like some, I distinctly remember we were taking, it was the first time I ever flew on a plane was the next day. So I think I had anxiety about that. Mm-hmm. And then I watched that movie on TV and like, I just remember it's the, it was, it's the first night in my memory where I stayed up all night. Just, I couldn't sleep. Oh, that'd be a terrifying film for a kid. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I should go, I should go back and revisit that just to maybe <laughs> exercise some of those uh, personal demons. So what is, what is, what are the things in this film that, that point you to say, ah, this, even if you didn't know this was David Lynch, are there moments where you say, yep, that's, that's the Lynch that I know from things like, um, like Eraserhead or Mulholland Drive or, or things like that. Oh, abs- abs- absolutely. There, there's about there's at least a half a dozen moments um, that are so purely Lynchian. Um, probably the one that stands out, the most obvious one, is the one where Alvin Strait comes upon the woman who just hit the deer. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 is pure Lynch. Um, and and partly because the touch to me that is that is Lynch is when she says, "Where do they come from?" And the camera pans out over these open fields, and it's like, yeah, how, how do these deer materialize in a way that she can't avoid them? Um, the other thing that I think is pretty Lynchian is when Alvin is talking to the twins who fixed the mower, uh, who happen to be the Farley brothers. Um, one of them has that weird bandage, was like something taped to his face. Yes, um, I, I I can't even tell what it is. It looks like a battery or something. So the, the, those are things I think that really stand out as as classically Lynchian. The other the other moments though are the the opening scene of the film uh when Dorothy is sunbathing next door and Alvin falls in the house and Dorothy she's she, and she gets up and gets this plate of food and that scene reminds me very much of the opening of um Blue Velvet where you have this kind of ordinary domestic scene but something really odd is happening. Um and then there's other little touches like the dialogue over uh, Alvin buying the grabber in the mm-hmm. um, in, in the hardware store that, that's a purely Lynchian dialogue scene. Um, Alvin shooting the tractor and explode it, it explodes into uh, into flames. Um, a very very quick shot. Maybe it's only about ten seconds, but Alvin and um, his daughter are out in the yard. It's a night, and there's a shot of the, of the grain elevator making mm-hmm. that very mechanical noise. Lynch loves factories. He loves the ugly. Um, he and he's fascinated by those urban landscapes, which is why this film is such an experimental departure for him again, because it's not uh, obviously at all urban. But the, the and the other moment that's very Lynchian to me, because it's almost dreamlike, is when um, uh, Alvin's daughter is looking out uh, of the window, the kitchen window at night, and uh, there's a pool of light from the street light, and the ball rolls into it, and then this little boy comes in and picks up the ball. It's it, there's almost a dreamlike quality to it, and the way she's looking at it, it's almost like she's having a dream. And then you don't, then you discover later on, you know, why it is that she's looking. So yeah, he fl- he flashes that. back to that. that. I thought because I totally forgot about Rose, like that she wasn't even a character in my memory. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, wow, Sissy Spacek is in this movie. And then I and then I realized, wow, that's actually it's a really interesting performance, and and it's a uh, an important, interesting character. That I just had totally forgotten about. Yeah, she. Uh, by the way, as an aside, she's she. She was a longtime friend of of Lynch's. Um, the first time she ever appeared in one of his films, but she was married for a long time to Jack Fisk, uh, the set designer. Uh, so uh, she's she's got a long Lynch uh, uh, connection. 
Yeah. Um, so as I as as you were as you watch this movie, is there um, any and maybe this is to try to think about even connection Lynch connecting Lynch to other filmmakers if this is even possible? Like, are there other people who could have made this film? Um. Yeah, I think I think so. Um, I'm not I'm not sure I can say right away who that might be, but I I think about. I'm not going to come up with a big name, right. but I do think, for example, about another film that we may watch later this semester is uh, Sweetland. Um, mm. uh, you know, and uh, I think, um, oh, there's a there's a set of the Polish brothers. There are uh, tw uh, twin filmmakers. Um, they made a really interesting film several years ago called North Fork uh, with Nick Nolte, and I could I could see them making a film like this as well. And I'm also trying to think of some classic. You know Hollywood directors, maybe yeah. uh, somebody, maybe somebody like a John Ford uh, could could make a film like this. Yeah, I will uh, say that the the, the, the name. What's interesting about that question, though, um, uh, Sam, is I'm also thinking of those people that I think are great filmmakers who couldn't have made it. Right. Which to me is what makes it such a great film because I think you know I don't think Martin Scorsese. I don't think. Uh, I don't think Stanley Kubrick. I don't think Steven Spielberg. I don't think they could have made this film. I think and that's what, right. if somebody could make a film like this and a film like Eraserhead, that's that's sort of astonish, astonishing to me. And that's partially why I asked the question is like, at one level, like it's a pretty simple movie, but I, I totally agree. Like that, I, I was certainly the only name that came to mind is there are definitely moments that I've never, and I, I've never thought of these filmmakers together, but like there's definitely moments where I was like, oh, the Coen brothers could have made this. Like, I, right. I feel like it would be a little different, but there are definitely moments where where I see um, sort of intersecting, where it's like, oh yeah, they 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 would have they would have done this scene in a particular kind of way. No, they couldn't have. I, I see. Oh, really? I, I, Why is that? Because I think the Cone Brothers can't keep a certain tone out of their films. I don't think the Cone Brothers are capable or want to be as earnest as Lynch is in this film. Well, that's the, interesting. Yeah, the, 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 this is Lynch revealing his Missoula, Montana roots. Whereas the Cone Brothers, um, they they tap into a kind of Jewish artistic tradition, which is which is quite different. Um, but one of the things about Lynch is, <laughs> I mean, he he is an amazingly contradictory person who nonetheless lives those contradictions very easily. He's um, a uh, as I said, he's from Missoula, Montana. He was an Eagle Scout. Um, and when he is straight, he is really straight. There's no irony in this film whatsoever. And I have never seen the Coen brothers tr treat anything without some degree of irony one way or the other. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was thinking of like particular scenes where it was like, oh, I could imagine them. Mm, I think partially oh, yeah. like there are, there, um, the intersections are maybe even more about casting kind of things where it's like, oh, like this is a movie full of faces that are really interesting. And I feel like, well, the Coens do that well. And and there are certain moments and interactions where I'm like, oh, I could see them again. It would be different. But but, you know, I think you're that you raise a really good point there. I think that the the tone because this movie is it. Uh, you know, maybe this is in part it being a David Lynch movie is you keep expecting something to happen that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, who, yeah. I mean, who who would expect a David Lynch movie to actually flirt with the corny? I mean, right. the, uh, you know, the the, fir the first kind of significant scene with the young uh, pregnant woman, right? I mean, 
and he he gives her this almost um, almost banal advice about uh, about the importance of family, you know. And then they wish he wakes up in the morning and she's tied the bundle of sticks together. I mean, there's something about the way he he pulls that off that you know, rather than rejecting it as that's that's just you know that's just really pure cornball. You kind of embrace it as as a as a wholesome and helpful perspective on life. Right. And that's probably in part because he doesn't diverge from that. Like, like that, like you said, the tone is consistent throughout. And, it, and, and because it's rooted so deeply in uh, Richard Farnsworth's performance, mm -hmm. I, I think because by that point in the film, you've, I think you've really invested in this guy. Um, you, you've kind of bought into his worldview. And so I think the fact that that, that that scene comes with his kind of imprimatur on it and his, his advice I think that enables us to kind of go along with it. Um, you know, he becomes a kind of a sage for us. Yeah. So maybe we should talk a little bit about Richard Farnsworth. Cause I mean, he is the more than the center of this movie. Like everything kind of revolves around him and in, in the uh, Roger Ebert's um, re review, the sort of revised review he wrote in, I think 2004, he said, uh, the first time I focused on the foreground and liked it. The second time I focused on the background too and loved it. Right. So Farnsworth is definitely in the foreground, right? And, and mm. you can talk a lot about all these other characters, but Farnsworth is the is the is in every scene of the film, every shot of the film, uh, and you know, in in lots and lots of ways. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe about the Farnsworth performance, about who Richard Farnsworth is? Yeah, he uh, you know he he started out mostly as a, as a kind of a stunt man and uh, and a and a bit actor. Um, he was in uh, Cecil DeMille's The Ten Commandments, uh, driving a chariot. He didn't get any speaking parts until I think it was 1976, um, and then he got a uh, actually he was awarded uh, he was nominated for Academy Award for supporting actor in Alan one of Alan Pacula's films. I think he was in Comes a Horseman. But by the time um, Straight Story came along, he had actually retired, and um, and he had cancer at the time of the filming, uh, and he actually had the trouble with his legs. That uh, the, it's not that's not a performance in the film. He actually had some partial paralysis in his legs. So when Lynch initially approached him about the film, um, he he turned him down, uh, and then Lynch ended up asking John Hurt actually uh, hmm. to play the character and Hurt said yes, but then Farnsworth changed his mind, and so Hurt, uh, so Hurt backed down. So, um, yeah, it, it truly is his, um, it's, it truly is his elegi elegiac performance. Um, it was the last thing he ever did. He got nominated for an Academy Award, and he went back and back to his ranch. And he said, you know, he always thought of himself more as a cowboy than an actor. He kind of, kind of in the Slim Pickens mold uh, in, that, in that respect. Hmm. So... Why does Lynch make this movie and, and both that and then why does he make it only once? Well, the reason he made the movie is because his longtime partner, um, both um, domestic and professional, Mary Sweeney, uh, wrote the screenplay uh, with John Roach. And initially, Lynch wasn't interested. Um, and then he read the screenplay. And Lynch is one of these guys where he, he loves to talk about the fact that he has no idea where his inspiration or his ideas come from. He talks about how they just kind of come out of the blue. So he read this script and he said he just fell in love with it. Uh, and, and, he, and he had to make it. So I think in a, in a way, so that's why he made it. Why he hasn't done another one is because this is not really, in many respects, this is not Lynch's imagination. This is somebody else's. Uh, but because it captured his imagination and because I think it connected with his own 
his own roots, um, he was able to bring it to fruition. But it's not the kind of way that he normally looks at the world. So again, I admire him for being able to really embrace somebody else's vision um, of, of how of how he wants to depict uh, the world. So, uh, so pivoting from thinking about why Lynch makes this movie, uh, why did you pick this movie as your uh, your second recommendation? Um, I guess I picked it because I I wanted something that was both. Uh, serious and hopeful, and also because it is one of the most deeply spiritual films I can think of, um, which is another surprising thing coming from Lynch. I mean, Lynch is actually a very spiritual person. He's practiced transcendental meditation for 30 years, but he's certainly not seen as somebody who typically um, resonates with uh, Christian spirituality or a biblical view of reality. But I think what's going on here is is deeply spiritual in that um, these, these, this is a film that reflects on what it means to get older. It reflects on our mortality. It reflects on how we deal with guilt. Ultimately, it reflects on how we reaffirm our connection to those who mean the, the most to us. Uh, you know, when Alvin Strait says uh, at one point, when I think it's when he's speaking to the pastor, the priest towards the end, he says, this trip is a deep swallow of my pride. I mean, that is as important a spiritual lesson as you can you can imagine. I could also say, although it wouldn't be true, um, that I picked the film because it seemed to me to be a nice uh, companion piece to Groundhog Day, um, because uh, it's it's also a film about um, learning learning about yourself and repairing some errors that you've made in the past. Hmm. Um. Uh, I want to. I have a couple questions. I want to think about like what, um, maybe what are lessons from the film. But before that, I, I have um, one one kind of filmmaking question, and and uh, this is maybe you know you're more um, studied in 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 Lynch's filmmaking. But there this there were a series of scenes that stood out to me, and it happens mostly when Alvin is. Um, Basically uh, shipwrecked at the uh, at at that the house for a while when the, the tractor breaks down, and there's a series of scenes that are shot at a distance of Alvin mm. talking to someone, and the the volume is the dialogue volume is pulled way way down as if it's all. I mean, at first blush, I was watching it with my kids, and they were like, "Is this a mistake?" They they wanted mm -hmm. to know like like, and it's like that's such an interesting choice. And I was trying to think about what. What is the meaning of that choice? And it, I think there's probably three or four scenes where it's like you're watching, but you're not exactly there. It's, it almost feels like you like you, if you were like you were a neighbor looking in, and so you can't you can if you listen really carefully, you can make out what they're saying. But it's it's almost like yeah, I I, I don't know. I'm I'm sort of curious what your thought was seeing those those scenes. Well, first I have to make a true confession, uh, Sam, and that is that. Because my, my hearing is not what it used to be, I tend to watch everything these days with subtitles. So, okay. so, <laughs> so the effect that you're talking about didn't, didn't strike me nearly as much as it would have a viewer who wasn't using subtitles. Um, no, I, but, but, but obviously I did notice it. And obviously I, I found myself thinking the same thing. Like, oh gosh, did something go wrong with the, uh, with, with the sound editing? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think it's a way of kind of, pulling us back as, as observers and 
kind of helping us to think about what's happening in terms of Alvin being part of a of a larger community. Um, because you know, up up mo for most of the film, we're right up close with him, as you've said. And I think it, I think by pulling back like that, I think in a sense, what Lynch is saying is, yeah, you may not be able to hear the dialogue, or the dialogue may be hard to pick up on. But what I want you to see, right, what I want you to do right now is I want you to look. I want you to see the the human interaction going on here, regardless of what they're saying to each other. At least that's that's one way I I, I think about it. Sure, and actually, the the things that are being talked about are like she brought out a plate of brownies or something like like they're not they're not you know things that yeah no that, that's very interesting. The other thing that that I that struck me about this movie was, and it's it's something I love about it, is how you're not as the viewer, and maybe these scenes point to this as well. You're not given total access. Like if you're watching this movie, waiting to figure out what exactly happened between Alvin and his brother, um, you don't. I mean, he he. There's moments where he hints at it, like right. when I think when he's talking to the priest, you know. And the, but the, so he goes from these specifics, then he's like, you know, it's Cain and Abel stuff, and you're like, oh, tell me what happened, you know. And and then and even when you get to the very end, they don't have a conversation. I mean, they don't have a conversation, and obviously that's intentional, and that's I think really great. But but I was I I love when a piece of art lets you into these intimate moments, but then also doesn't give you everything. Right. And, and, and yeah, the, the Cain and Abel thing, as you said, he's, I mean, Alvin himself says the conflict is as old as the Bible, mm -hmm. um, anger, vanity, and liquor. So, right. you know, you, you, you fill in your own arguments that you, you know, you, you fill in your own alienations that, that you've experienced. Um, right. and it's, this becomes a kind of a template for that. Well, and that actually, that actually also seems consistent with, I mean, I'll talk about the, the David Lynch things that I'm most familiar with, which would be the, the original Twin Peaks episodes, which is, I mean, the, on its face, it's about how these things that seem very normal and every day, as you, if you scratch the surface, there's, there's a, a darkness and a hurt and there's deeper things there. But even if you dig deeper, you never fully, like, like if you're, if you watch Twin Peaks waiting for it to all be explained, it's not going to all be explained. Right. And then this is actually, it's a very different story, but it's like, you're not going to get all that. And then at this, that's why I think the scene in the bar with the other, where they're talking about world war two is so interesting. Cause I feel like that's a moment where he kind of tells you everything about, about some, you know, about, about a piece of him and where in other ways he, it's like, he doesn't want to talk too much about himself. And that's a moment. I mean, that's obviously a, a, a crucial moment in the film where he, it's like, he tells you a full story. Or at least a lot more of a story. Yeah, and that was uh, incidentally that was a, that was one take. Really? Yeah, that was the whole. That was, they did it in one take, and that was it. Um. So, <clears throat> if we're thinking about you know vanity, anger, liquor, what's interesting? Uh, one thing that that I found interesting and uh, is so when he goes to the bar and they're talking about World War Two. Uh, the 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 guy he's there with you know, has a, a Miller Lite and and Alvin has a glass of milk in front of him and he talks about I haven't had a drink in so long, but then right before he meets with his brother he goes to the bar and decides to order a beer, a Miller Lite. Yeah, what uh, what's that about? Like that 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 was one of those. I mean, like I guess I could probably project out things, but what do you have thoughts on on 
that's a, a clear choice as well there. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I thought a lot about that, Sam, because it's it's an obvious. Um, I mean, obviously, Lynch wants us to notice that that he's he's having a beer. He says that he hasn't had a drink in years. Um, I guess I have a couple thoughts about it. I think well, three. I have three ideas. Um, one is that there's been a kind of cathartic moment for him in the previous bar scene where he's finally confessed what he's done. And, you know, this is, uh, that's an important release for him. And obviously his drinking uh, has been part of uh, a way of dealing with that guilt. So, so you, you, so you could, so you could argue that because he's had that catharsis, um, he's able to, uh, to have uh, to, to be able to consume liquor again without having it serve that function of helping him to try to deal with the pain that he's been feeling. Um, the other option or the other thing it could it could be about, which I don't like this explanation as well, but I think it could be about he could be stealing himself a little bit for mm -hmm. going to see his brother um, or or he made us want to be kind of proving to himself you know, that he's kind of overcome this, um, uh, the alcoholism, that he, he can have one beer and just walk away from it. So I don't know, I think all, to me, all those things may, maybe, maybe play into it. Well, we're, we're getting to the, the, the close of our show, but I, I want to talk, um, maybe hear you talk a little bit about, uh, about the end of the movie. Um, and, but and also, you know, and, and the, the movie ends where it begins with, a, and, and it's with the motif that happens throughout the film. So obviously the, um, the sky, especially the night sky plays a very significant role. I mean, uh, and that this is something he talks about. I mean, he and Rose are looking up at the sky. He talks about the sky with the priest. He talks about the sky with the, the young pregnant woman. Um, and he talks about like what he wants to do was, is sit with his brother and look up at the sky again. Um, so I mean, can you talk a little bit about the, about maybe the ending of the film about the sky? Yeah, I, actually, I, I do have to bookend it with the beginning of the film though, because the, the beginning of the film reminds me of, um, the opening of James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man, um, where, uh, it describes what Stephen Dedalus has written on the inside cover of his school book. Um, and it goes from the, the very general, the universe uh, all the way down to his specific um, address. And the opening of the film does that, right? It starts with the stars, and then it does the fields, and then it does the town, and then it does the main street, and then it does Alvin's house. Mm -hmm. so, it's, so it's like Lynch is telling you from the very beginning, this is a universal story about a very particular person. Um, and so that... I think to me, the stars for that reason are, are the most important recurring motif in the film um, because they're a, they're, a, they're a signal that we need to remember that these particular lives that we live take place in this, in this larger context. So at one point well, in, when he's talking to the young pregnant woman, uh, Alvin says that looking at the stars help me, helps me think. Mm -hmm. um, and then he when he talks about looking at the stars with his brother, he says um, uh, it, it made our troubles uh, seem smaller uh, to be able to be able to look at the stars. Um, and then, of course, what he says to the priest is, "I want to make peace with him and look up at the stars." Mm -hmm. uh, and the priest says, "Amen" to that. And, and and the other thing I'd say is, remember where his brother lives. Right, his brother lives in Mount Zion. 
Um, and so this, this notion that his goal is Mount Zion, uh, and then he's going to look up at the stars. And some people have seen, I'm not sure I want to exactly read it, read this into that, but some people have seen a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. Hmm. Um, he's looking up at the stars and those are the children that Abraham will, will be given. Um, it's possible since the, since the film has lots of other, you know, it has other biblical references, but I think that, you know, that what's happening there is, um, it's a moment of kind of both transcendence and in a kind of return. Uh, it's almost like a, a T.S. Eliot sort of return to home for the first time. So uh, before we get to the recommendation for next week, is there anything else that you want to say about uh, about the straight story? Um, I guess I, I want to say that it surprised me how much I liked it again and, and actually how, how much I, I liked it even 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 more. Um, and, and there's one more line in the film that I think is important that we haven't talked about. And that is when, when Alvin goes to the doctor and the doctor says, if you don't make some changes quickly, there'll be some serious consequences. That's, and, inter and it's that's interesting. really interesting to think about. Yes, because that's immediately followed by the, the edit is it's immediately followed by Alvin lighting up a cigar. And you think, He's he's not paying attention to the doctor at all, but in fact, he takes that advice deeply to heart, and he does make some serious changes. Right, they're um, they're personal the other, spiritual yeah. changes, but yeah. Right. The other thing I want to add is you could also see the film uh, as a variation on the American Road movie, um, although it's a single rider. But I think of that things like Easy Rider and Thelma and Louise, and of course, when it's Sissy Spacek's first film with Martin Sheen, Badlands. Um, but this is a film that's the American Road movie, but it's a single person and it's at five miles per hour. And I think that's a really, again, I think that that's also how the film is experimental and that Lynch is transforming that, that genre into something very different. There's a beautiful moment. Um, one of the reviewers pointed, pointed this out where the camera is following Alvin and it pans up into the sky uh, and it comes back down. And that's usually your continuity editing um, uh, cue that time will have passed, but it goes up and comes down, and he's basically in the same place. Right. Um, so, so just as Groundhog Day is a journey through time, this is actually a journey through space. I love it. All right, Barrett, what uh, what should we be watching for next week? Well, I'm going to take a page uh, out of your book, Sam. I think we should watch Bobette's Feast next week. Oh, I love it. I. I cannot wait. I can't wait to watch this movie with my kids. I can't. Um, I, I've started to work with them on watching um, subtitled films because, like, I I want to start to introduce ideas to them. So I I can't wait. This is and I, and I think both that film and this film I think they're appropriate for the Easter season as well. So. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed the straight story. Uh, and we hope that you join us uh, next week to talk about Babette's Feast. If you're listening and you are watching these movies along with us, please get in touch with the show. Uh, you can email us at uh, channel3900 at gmail.com. Um, we'll be back next week to talk about Babette's Feast. Barrett, thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. Great. All right. We'll catch you next week in the video store.